Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I sit down with Kevin Marak, PhD. He received a master's degree in exercise physiology at James Madison University in Virginia. He then earned his PhD in human bioenergetics from the Ball State Human Performance Laboratory in Indiana. His dissertation, which we talk about in this episode, was a collaboration with NASA aimed at optimizing the exercise prescription for astronauts on the International Space Station. After Ball State, he spent six years as a postdoctoral fellow and scholar studying one of my favorite topics, muscle stem cells at the University of Kentucky's Center for Muscle Biology in Lexington. He is now an assistant professor at the University of Arkansas. He has a lab, it's called M3R, which stands for Muscle Mass Regulation. What I love about this conversation is it really highlights the basic science. We talk about nutrition, we talk about exercise. Kevin does so well is examine some of the genetic and epigenetic expressions of what exercise does. We spoke about the Yamanaka factor. These are the factors that we think about from an age reversal and, quote, regeneration perspective. We also discuss what is DNA methylation. We're hearing a lot about methylation and how does that relate to the aging and adaptation of skeletal muscle. And finally, how does exercise improve longevity from a genetic and epigenetic expression? I hope you love this episode. As always, we provide this content free. It would mean the world to me and our team. If you share it, leave us a review. We would love your feedback. Our goal is to educate. Let's dive in to this episode. Thank you to AquaTrue for sponsoring this episode of the show. Having clean, healthy water is a non-negotiable in our household, but the tap water that you drink oftentimes has contaminants. Depends on the city that you live in, where your location is. We are an advancing society, and with advancements, we are getting more and more chemical byproducts and things like PFAS and other contaminants found in our water. AquaTrue has a capacity to remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. AquaTrue is specifically designed to combat chemicals. This makes a fantastic, useful gift for people. Give them something that they absolutely can use and will help make them healthier. I even give filtered water to my plants. If you have pets, Pets should be having filtered water, and AquaTrue does a fantastic job. And these filters, they last anywhere from six months to two years. Uh, really just incredible. My listeners get 20% off and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Head on over to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com. And enter the code Dr. Lion at checkout, and you will receive 20% off. Thank you to Timeline Nutrition for sponsoring this episode of the show. I am totally hooked on MitoPure. 
And if I were to create a supplement, this certainly would be it. Mitopure, which is something called urolithin A, helps our mitochondria produce energy more efficiently. It triggers our body's natural cellular renewal process. It replaces damaged mitochondria with fresh new ones, this process called mitophagy. This is thoroughly researched. It has over a decade of peer-reviewed science. I strongly suggest that you guys look in PubMed. You can actually find these papers. You can try it yourself for the health of your skeletal muscle. Head on over to TimelineNutrition.com slash Dr. Lion. You will get 10% off your first order This is an absolutely incredible, incredible supplement. It comes in capsule form. It also has a beautiful product line that has a mitopure berry or ginger powder. You can mix this in your daily smoothie. Again, it is made with urolithin A. Urolithin A is a postbiotic that helps with mitochondrial health, giving you more energy, improving muscle function and health. Head on over to TimelineNutrition.com slash Dr. Lion for 10% off your first order. Dr. Kevin Murak, thank you so much for joining us. I am thrilled and a shout out to Dr. Chris Fry who made the introduction. We are excited to talk about all things skeletal muscle, skeletal muscle epigenetics. You are doing some very innovative work. I would love for you to tell the audience a little bit about your lab. I see that you have got a M3 shirt on. Yep. <laughs> yep, that's my lab. Yeah, yep. want to hear everything that you are doing. Yeah. Uh, so again, my my name is Kevin Murak. I've uh, been studying skeletal muscle uh, for about a little, well over a decade for sure. Uh, so I did uh, some of my education, my early education at UNC, which uh, in Chapel Hill, you know, basketball and all that. So uh, that was my undergraduate in exercise sports science and a master's degree in exercise physiology from James Madison University. And then I did my PhD at Ball State, um, which is the longest running, um, still open human performance laboratory in America. And it was a lot of skeletal muscle um, human work that we were interested in at that time. And then I spent six years, as you mentioned, uh, Chris Fry, uh, He's currently at the University of Kentucky. I spent six years there as a postdoc, and that's where Chris and I crossed paths. So just to kind of close that loop, uh, that's where that came from. And so uh, Chris is a, is a collaborator, friend, and mentor. He's, uh, he's a great guy, so I know I look forward to listening to his podcast. Um, yeah, and so then I started my own laboratory at the University of Arkansas in 2021. And so uh, we've been interested in trying to study skeletal muscle adaptation to exercise with a specific emphasis in aging, uh, trying to understand how aged muscle can become more like younger people's muscle. And so we've been trying to explore that using a lot of different um, sort of molecular biology and biochemical techniques. Uh, we, uh, we do use human muscle samples, not that we obtain here, but usually through collaborators. But uh, we do have um, human a human aspect to our work. So we try to make it as translational as possible. But uh, we do use a lot of genetically modified mouse models as well as cell culture techniques to try and understand how skeletal muscle adapts to exercise at the cellular and molecular levels. And we also try to do as much in vivo work as we can with the mice to, again, make it as translatable as possible to human beings. So 
um, that's that's what we're we're on to right now. What we're into uh, as far as research, uh, just is very sp- focused on skeletal muscle and just trying to to make that muscle healthier, stronger, more functional, and trying to understand what kind of molecular um, what molecular things underpin that. So that's that's the focus of my lab. Yeah, um, I think it is very innovative. You talk about some very unique perspectives of skeletal muscles. So for example, in the medicine and nutrition space, we talk a lot about anabolic resistance and these changes to the actual tissue regarding sarcopenia and you know even fat infiltration. But where your work is so unique, and I'm excited for you to highlight some of these aspects of aging, is that oftentimes we don't think about the epigenetic changes or the methylation changes in skeletal muscle. And I would love for you to first kind of lay the landscape for what happens to aging skeletal muscle. I was reading some of your other papers, and I have a a handful of them pulled up. And what is so interesting is that the influence of exercise has an input to in, in potentially some regenerative capacity to skeletal muscle, which I think we can all agree exercise is good for us. But how does that actually translate and and how good for us is it? And and what does that mean to our genetics, our epigenetics? What does that mean to our transgenerational culture? So anyway, the, the first question is what happens to aging muscle that potentially if the listener is thinking, um, does skeletal muscle become less responsive to exercise? Does skeletal muscle become less responsive to the environmental influences? Sure. And I think it's important to preface anything I'm about to say with the fact that, you know, there's very few instances where exercise isn't good, I think. Um, You know, you're almost always going to benefit if you're a healthy person to begin with. You're almost always going to benefit from from exercise. Um, And if you, you can start it at almost any age, and, and obtain some sort of benefits, even if, you know, maybe you can't put on muscle mass like a bodybuilder um, in your 70s and 80s. Um, it doesn't mean you're not going to benefit from doing something because um, you most certainly will. And sometimes those those functional benefits happen in the absence even of like overt changes, like really large increases in muscle mass and things like that. And again, I, I view things through the lens a lot of times of resistance sort of training, although I do endurance train as well. I mean, I I endurance train three days a week and resistance train three days a week. It's a mix of both and they're both very important, but I've always been very interested in resistance training, lifting weights, how muscle grows. Those are things that fascinate me. But, um, but anyway, uh, so, so to answer your question though, like as we age though, a lot of changes happen in skeletal muscle that, um, can lead to functional decline, which is, is not ideal. Of course. I mean, if you, if you lose enough muscle mass and enough muscle function, you can get to a place where you can't even live independently anymore. And so that's, that's not ideal. And so, and the amount of muscle mass and uh, commensurate function that your muscle has is very much related to your independence and what you're able to do and really how much you can even enjoy your life. Cause if you can't walk up a, a set of stairs, it's going to be tough to, to live an active, vibrant lifestyle. And so, um, but as we age, obviously the muscle, um, starts getting smaller naturally, which is not ideal. Um, we call this some um, age related sarcopenia often, but, um, it's just a, a natural decline in muscle mass that tends to happen. Um, that decline in muscle mass also often, um, occurs in lockstep with the re- reductions in 
physical activity too. A lot of times as you get older, you're not as physically active anymore. And so these two things kind of go hand in hand, but it is an, it is something that happens even independent to a certain degree of your physical activity level. Um, so it's just, it's an unfortunate natural process of a loss of muscle mass, which often leads to a loss of strength, but also power production. Um, and actually is power production as we get older, that is a very, very important factor. And that declines fairly precipitously. And so, um, and that is that, that functional measure, the power and the force production, um, is really what enables you to do your activities of daily living and to be active. And so as we get older, those things start declining and that is due to a variety of different factors. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate in the field and what exactly causes these things. Is it that the nerves that are communicating with your muscle cells are starting to not communicate so well. Maybe you lose some of those nerves and eventually start losing some of the muscle cells or the muscle fibers. They start getting smaller. Um, There tends to be changes in your metabolism. So the mitochondria tend to, um, which are the powerhouses of the cell, they tend to um, not function as well sometimes as you get older, um, especially if you're not active. And this can lead to various deleterious consequences that can lead to a loss of muscle mass and function. Um, there are things that happen, you know, all the way down to the level of your genes and your epigenetics. So essentially, um, do you want me to talk I do, about it? I do it. And I'm before you yeah. continue, I have a question for you. For sure. Yeah. So the, the question is, so you mentioned these changes of aging and with the changes of aging in step is this decrease in activity, decrease in power. Is it an aging process, which I know that in your lab, I'm sure that you've identified, I mean, I'm looking at these Yamanaka factors that you've written about, et cetera. Is it a decrease in activity? So if age was not a factor, is it the actual decline in the stresses from the environment? Is it a decrease in activity? Is, I mean, obviously, you know, I even wonder with the decrease in capillary perfusion, is it an aging phenomenon or is it a inactivity phenomenon that accelerates aging that's the that's the perpetual question really because a lot of times as you say as i mentioned these two things happen simultaneously you're losing muscle mass and function and you tend to become less active as you get older so is it a chicken or the egg thing i mean there is a natural decline that happens with aging irrespective of the physical activity aspect can you be really physically active and mitigate some of those declines most certainly but there is i mean it's there is a natural decline that occurs um and i think you know is probably exacerbated by the loss of physical activity i mean if even if a young person for instance goes and has to lay in bed for a long period of time for whatever reason if it's injury if it's you know um just a period, long, prolonged period of inactivity for one reason or another, I mean, you're going to lose muscle mass and function. I mean, that is something that absolutely happens when you're not active. Um, it happens to astronauts, for instance, when they go to space and they can't use their muscles the same way anymore. They can't work against gravity. They lose muscle mass and function precipitously. And, and for and the so- listener, by the way, and for the listener, I think you were very interested in space and astronauts. I think you did an early project for NASA yeah. as uh, the beginning in the beginning of your career. That's right. Yeah, that was uh, that's very very observant. Yes, I was uh, during my, my PhD in at Ball State. They had a long running collaboration with NASA and still do. Um, it's been going on for a very long since the eighties, I think, um, and perhaps the nineties. But um, but 
but yeah, it was a project trying to figure out the best exercise prescription for astronauts for the, for the reasons where I'm describing is like when you go to space, there's no gravity and it's actually, it's hard to even lift weights and load your muscle because dumbbells, barbells, these things, they use gravity. That's, that's what, you know, makes them heavy. But <laughs> when you go to space, there is no gravity. And so there is no weight, it's weightlessness. And so you have to use different sorts of exercise devices and ex- different types of exercise prescriptions to load the muscle effectively. Cause when you think about when you're a terrestrial environment, um, and there's gravity and you're walking around, every time you take a step, you're loading the muscles of your legs, you're loading the muscles of your back. Even when you're just sitting, you're still loading certain muscles and they're getting a stimulus. Uh, when you go to space, that's all gone. Like there is no stimulus on the bones, no stimulus on the muscles, like gravity's not there. So that's the first thing you have to overcome is how do, how often do we need to stimulate the muscles, the bones, all these different things to maintain what you had on earth. But then the other part is, okay, exercise is good. We know this. So what type of exercise do we need to be doing to try and maintain functionality? Because it's important because, you know, these astronauts may go on spacewalks and be cruising around out in, you know, out in space and having to do things that are very physical to, you know, fix the spaceship or the space station or what have you. Um, so they need to be functional in that respect, but also they go to a different planet. They need to be able to walk around and do the things that they're supposed to do. And if they have no muscle mass, they're not going to be able to do that. And likewise, when they come back to space or they come back to earth, rather, um, you know, if they want to resume their lifestyle here on earth uh, and they lost all their muscle mass, it's going to be exceedingly difficult to do. And so the project was geared towards trying to understand the best exercise prescription for astronauts. So we actually used a ground-based analog for that project. So we had people, I, I say we, um, NASA had people lie in bed for 70 days um, in, a, in a six degree head down tilt position, which, oh re- yeah, I know, which replicates the uh, the cardiovascular changes they that happen. They must have paid those participants a lot, yeah. a lot of money, you guys. Um, yeah, they, I, they, I, they I can't paid them a lot. <laughs> is there anything, I mean, and just to bring us back to Earth, um, I'm joking, uh, Earth, we actually had a NASA PhD, the head of the physiology research lab at NASA, well, one of the heads in nutritional science space. Oh, yeah. Who was that? Um, I can't remember his name. I've interacted with a lot of those folks yeah. during my, this was many years ago. I'm sure. trying to think. Like, He's been there Bob for many years. Jeff Ryder. Uh, man, there was a bunch of people that we interacted with, but it was, my project was less nutrition oriented and more exercise oriented. So there was nutrition, I think, component. I mean, obviously they have nutritionists that are giving these people food the whole time. Right. They're clinical studies. They're in these big medical type centers and it's, it's highly, highly controlled. And so they're really fascinating. They're expensive studies to pull off because I mean, you have people in a ward, you know, I, I don't remember the sample size of my study. I think it was like 12 or 10 or something like that. But that's a lot of people to, to have do nothing in bed for 70 days. And then when they exercise, they have to also remain, remain in a recumbent type position. Um, and so like, cause once you start standing up and loading them, then you know, and, you've the and so, um, so yeah, everything has to be done lying down and it's wild. Um, they're, they're wild studies, but yeah, for that particular study, um, we had the 70 day bed rest group that we were using, um, to, to replicate what it would be like to go to space for that period of time. And there was an arm of the study, which I wasn't involved in, but where astronauts were getting biopsied or muscle samples were being taken from their legs before and after space flight, which is how we study these muscles, we take muscle samples using these, these, um, biopsy needles are called Bergstrom biopsy needles. And, um, we stick that into their leg. That sounds a little violent. We, no, you know. no, no. We, we, we talk lots <laughs> about biopsies. So you're, you're in, you're in good company. Yeah. And I, 
Nobody yeah. thinks they are fun to uh, have done yes. or do. And your lab right now, your M3R lab, which is so cool, you right. named your lab. Um, would you say the primary research, you know, I'm looking at one of your relevant papers, your recent papers, it was a molecular signature defining exercise adaptations with aging and in vivo partial reprogramming in skeletal muscle. Um, we thought that this paper was fascinating myself and my team members we were looking at. And so uh, a summary of this paper, which I'd love for you to highlight for the listener, the study explores the similarities between exercise induce, induced changes in muscle, in muscles and this process, which we were talking about, partial molecular reprogramming, which you're going to explain for us, often associated with the Yamanaka factors. And for those who don't know much about the Yamanaka factors, which I actually didn't up until maybe a year or two ago. Um, they're known for reverting the cells to a more youthful state. They, You guys compared genes in the expressions that you compared gene expressions in muscles after exercise with these Yamanaka factor induction um, in both mice and humans. So I'd love for you to explain a little bit about this, how it's relevant for us as we think about aging. Again, we always think about aging from this sarcopenic aspect, these very tangible aspects that we could almost touch. But your work is quite fascinating from a molecular level. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. So I'll maybe just start with the Yamanaka factor, and then hopefully you can key or you can cue me to get back to the other parts of this, the exercise and all these things. But um, so it's difficult to explain. And so I'll do my best. So, you know, all of our cells in our body, well, almost all of them have DNA in them, right? And that's kind of the blueprint for who we are as human beings. And so every cell has the same DNA. Um, for the most part, we all do, every single cell will have the exact same DNA template. And basically what happens as we develop into fully mature adults, um, that DNA for each cell type changes. So we start as stem cells, essentially, and those stem cells ultimately become all the differentiated cell types that comprise our body. So our skin, our bone, our muscle, all these things. So they all started as one cell type, these stem cells that then eventually became specialized over time. And so and how that happens is that, you know, we have all the genes that are in the DNA that are access more or less accessible at the beginning when they're these really young stem cells. Um, and then over time, different sets of genes get turned on and turned off. And this is controlled by epigenetics. So essentially, we have the DNA template, the DNA code that has all the genes, but which ones we turn on and turn off is depending on dependent on epigenetics. So there's a lot of different layers of epigenetic regulation of DNA. So and what is epigenetic DNA, for the listener? So essentially, well, the way I'll define it for the purposes of this conversation is it changes to gene expression without altering the genetic code. So we're not talking about mutations. We're not talking about adding in genes or taking away genes to the DNA. We're just talking about how we turn them on and turn them off, how we control their expression. And so, you know, genetics is the DNA. That's what we have. The whole, all the genes that our cells can express, that's you know, the genetics, the epigenetics is the control of how those genes are being turned on and turned off. And there's a lot of different layers of regulation of epigenetics. I mean, their DNA is wound around histones in nucleosomes, and that allows whether they can be accessed or not accessed those histones 
can be modified in different ways to allow access to the DNA. So genes can be expressed and turned on or turned off. But even the the DNA itself can have modifications put onto them or taken away from them that allow a gene to be expressed or repressed. So, you know, for I, I study muscle, for instance. And so in muscle, we want to express muscle genes. We want to express you know, the myosins that are important for contraction. We want to express, you know, titan and all these other structural proteins that are really important for our muscles to be functional. Um, you wouldn't want those things being expressed in your eye cell or, or your skin cell because it, it doesn't need to, it doesn't need those genes. It doesn't need those proteins. And if it expressed them, it, w- it wouldn't be ideal. And so basically what happens is when muscle becomes muscle during development, the g- genes that are ideal for muscle, like these myosins and all these things that are important for muscle contraction, get turned on, whereas all the stuff you don't need, so the the genes that make your skin cells your skin cells or your bone cells your bone cells, um, those get repressed and turned off epigenetically. And so basically, you know, you get this, you have this template and then it just gets basically modified in different ways so that a cell can become what it ultimately needs to be and turns off all the other things you don't need. So I guess that's sort of the best way to describe epigenetics. That's (laughs) that's very helpful. And when we think about what we do on a daily basis to express certain genes, the epigenetic interface with the environment, would that be something like nutrition or exercise or environmental exposures from a negative capacity or even sleep? Are there things that we do as humans that influence that genetic expression of um, what we have and and primarily skeletal muscle because that's what we're interested in? Yeah. And that's what I think about all the time is skeletal muscle. Yeah. The answer is yes. I mean, when you go and you go to the, I like to lift weights. So I lifted weights this morning before I got on this call with you. And so uh, I went to the gym this morning and I lifted some weights. And so in order for those genes of adaptation to be expressed. So, you know, when your muscle adapts, a lot of things are happening, like genes are getting turned on and they're being made available so that an mRNA can be made, which is like kind of the the miniature template of that gene that can then get turned into a protein that thing can then have a function in the cell. Um, and that process gets modified when we go, every time we go and exercise. So it, so when I go and lift a weight, there are epigenetic changes that occur that allow the genes for adaptation of my muscle to get turned on so that then they can get turned into mRNAs that can then get turned into proteins that can then lead to adaptation. Um, and so, yeah, these things are happening all the time, um, especially in the context of exercise. There's, there's changes that occur acutely with our epigenetics. So maybe a gene that's kind of been dormant gets modified epigenetically so that it can be expressed in a relatively short period of time, maybe within 30 minutes or so, and then it goes dormant again. Um, Or there can be changes that happen if you exercise a lot throughout your lifespan. There might be more long, kind of long range or long lasting epigenetic changes that happen in your skeletal muscle that can maybe allow you to be more adaptable to exercise in the future if you had a layoff or if you- So would that be like, uh, would that be something like muscle memory? I know that yeah, people that, talk about muscle memory as it relates to nerves, but this idea of training and then detraining and going back to that activity. No, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it, at least it's my opinion that that is an epigenetically regulated process. Um, if, if you buy into the idea that, you know, if you exercise and take time off and then start exercising again, that you adapt more quickly. Um, 
I would say that that's probably an epigenetically mediated process. And we've done some research to try and kind of unravel that a little bit. But uh, I mean, there is good scientific data for that process. You know, like oftentimes, even human beings, long-term studies where you train someone, then you have them detrain and train again, will gain back muscle mass more quickly that second time. And so because they had trained before, so there was some sort of like memory of their of their muscle um, being bigger and stronger previously. And so um, we've delved into that topic a little bit, um, looking at epigenetics and muscle fibers to try and see if there are like long lasting epigenetic marks from when you were well trained. Um, and it, we did find some things that that we that did point in that direction, and we're still following up on that. Actually, that's that's an area of research in my laboratory. But um, but yeah, that's we think that that's an epigenetically mediated process because we're not changing our genes. We're not saying you know, okay, when you lift a weight, you somehow get different or more genes that would lead to you know your DNA is your DNA. It's what you're doing is you're just changing how it gets accessed, which genes get accessed, maybe how quickly they get accessed or for how long so that they get turned on for a longer or shorter period of time that would then lead to a a more efficient adaptive process. And is that why people care about it? So for example, the listener might be thinking, okay, well, why do I actually care about any kind of epigenetic change or these Yamanaka factors or this MYC uh, gene? Why does the listener care? Is there a unique expression to individuals? For example, if I went and I did resistance training, would my gene expression be different than Kevin, than yours who went and you did um, resistance training? And why would one care about that from an aging perspective? So what would be the benefit of creating epigenetic changes versus not doing anything and leaving things as is? Well, I mean, I guess if, if, you know, I think for me, it's, it's motivation to, to be as fit as possible when I'm young. Cause let's say I do run into some sort of situation where, you know, maybe I'm injured or I have to take a long layoff from exercise or whatever the case may be, or maybe I, the whole world flies off to another planet and we go populate some other planet and I can't exercise on the spaceship, whatever, whatever crazy hypothetical we want to talk about. But yeah, I mean, whatever, um, you know, changes I'm inducing in my muscles now when I'm young and healthy may have benefit for me down the road. Um, and a time that maybe, you know, plasticities or we use the word plasticity. So how adaptable your muscle is exercise at a time when maybe plasticity starts to go down as you age, maybe having, having fitter muscle earlier in your life because of these epigenetic changes could help to mitigate some of that muscle loss or help to amplify your ability to adapt when you start exercising again. And so I do see some, some tangible benefit there. Now, how we could specifically, you know, leverage, uh, we know that, you know, these genes are epigenetically modified with exercise. How can we go in and specifically target those sites and, you know, make it so that those genes get turned on more or longer or whatever to induce exercise adaptation? I think we're, we're still pretty far away from that. But the thing is, we have to understand it. We have to understand it first before we can design any sort of therapeutic or intervention to leverage the benefits of something. Like if you don't understand it, it's going to be really hard to target. And I mean, that's, you know, the whole pharmaceutical industry is you know, like trying, sometimes they target things that they don't understand and it's, it just works and like, okay, great. But I mean, it's better to have a good understanding of how the process works so that you can design an effective therapeutic down the road. And that's kind of where my lab and my research slots in, I guess, in some capacity is just like, what's going on here? Like what, what, how does this process work? So that I can maybe in the future, maybe me, maybe someone else, able to design a therapeutic 
or design an exercise program that optimizes some of these epigenetic changes um, so that we can have a better response. Um, I'd like to thank one of the sponsors of the show, and that is Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker makes blood work very, very easy and painless. You can go to the Inside Tracker store. My listeners will get 20% off their multiple packages. Blood work is of critical importance. You guys have to get it done. You have to track what you're doing so that you can prevent any kind of train wreck that is potentially going to happen. It doesn't just happen. There are signs, there are symptoms, and monitoring your blood is so crucial. Individuals age at different rates. We do different things that impact our health and wellness. Why not expose those things? Go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. That's insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. And you will get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. They analyze your blood, your DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you are optimized and where you are not. Thank you to Paleo Valley for sponsoring this episode of the show. My favorite go to beef or pork or turkey snack. These sticks are fermented, which makes them incredible. They have a very unique texture, a family favorite. They are made with grass fed, grass finished beef. If you get the beef, if you get the pork or turkey, all of these are sustainable and locally sourced. They have organic spices, truly amazing, high quality protein, keto friendly, high protein friendly, you name it. They do not cut corners. They prioritize health over profit. It's a very conscientious company. I love them. Paleo Valley, beef sticks, pork, turkey, they're all incredible. And you, my friend, get 15% off. Head on over to Paleo Valley dot com and use the code Dr. Lion for 15% off. I promise you this will be a new family favorite. Paleovalley.com and use the code Dr. Lion for 15% off. I am curious, do you think that there is a and I know what you're gonna say, but I, I want to frame this because selfishly I'm very interested. I always want to know the effective dose of something. We are very physically active, uh, or many people are, uh, at least many people that are listening to this, and they want to know how are they going to execute a training protocol that is effective, not just effective in strength or power, but effective in some of these uh, epigenetic changes that you're talking about, which I think will bring us back to the Yamanaka factors, which we need to hear about again, which is very unique to your lab. How do we know if we're doing it right? Period. <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, easy as far question. As like, yeah, yeah. No, I'll I'll do my best, but I don't want to step out of my lane because you know I, I think about you know I have lots of friends that are more practitioners, right? Like, I don't, have you heard of Andy Galpin? He's of he's a guy that I we, yeah, uh, Andy is a very dear friend. I recently saw him. We were at a special operations conference together. Right. Andy, just shout out to you. We've been trying to coordinate for a podcast, but. Andy's very well, famous nowadays, so I need to go visit yeah, him. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he, he he overlapped with me at Ball State by about 
I don't know, six months or something like that. Cause he was leaving as I was coming. Uh, I'm just, so, yeah, we're um, Andy, we're, we, I love you. You know, I love you. I'm busting your chops, but anyway, back to the, the effectiveness and the Yamanaka factors. Yeah. So what I'll say as far as like, you know, do what, what, let, I'll just distill the question a little bit, which is like, do we see epigenetic changes, um, with a small amount of exercise, I guess, like, you know, like a, 30 minute exercise bout. And yeah, the the epigenetic changes that happen often have to happen in order for adaptation to even proceed. And so um, the answer there is, you know, it it doesn't take much activity, I don't think, to um, induce some of these changes. Because if you see a a change, it's not always the case, but if you see a change in like gene expression, for instance, so like you do an exercise bout, you take a sample of muscle before and after the exercise bout, and you look at changes in gene expression, not always, but many times, um, sometimes I'll say is that there was a change in the epigenetics of that gene before the gene became expressed. So, um, in order for adaptation to occur, this kind of like first step, you know, this alteration to epigenetics often will proceed the gene expression that then results in the protein being translated. The thing to understand is there's a lot of steps in the process, you know what I mean? Like, and we're looking at like, oftentimes, you know, pre-step one, you know, because when you think about like, you know, the, the central dogma of molecular biology, it's like, you know, gene gets transcribed and then it gets translated into a protein and then it has a function in the cell. And we're talking about the step even before the gene gets accessed and becomes something that can be usable by the cell. And so, um, a lot of times, uh, you know, this, it should be linear, but it's not. Right. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, we do look at um, you know different types of resistance exercise, endurance exercise, concurrent training, all these different things to look at um, the different epigenetic kind of marks that are changing. And we do see a lot with almost any type of exercise. We do see um, you know changes that are occurring, which is a good thing. But how long those changes last, I think, is a different question, and perhaps a more pertinent question. Like when we think about you know this memory that we talk about, like if you train and then you become detrained and then want to retrain. How long does that memory last, this epigenetic memory? And what genes is it active and why is it active in those genes? Um, don't know the answers to that yet. Those are things we're still trying to explore. What about the type of uh, training and these Yamanaka factors? Is there a type of training that seems to influence them more than others? Sure. Let's, well, maybe we talk about Yamanaka factors just in a global sense before I address the exercise question. And I said before that, you know, the reason how we become a fully formed human being is through these changes in epigenetics. We start with these stem cells, which could almost become just about any type of cell. Um, And then these epigenetic changes happen as the cell progresses through its fate transition to become whatever it is, it's going to be a muscle cell, a skin cell, what have you. Um, So this was, I guess, I want to say it was, I should know the year. I think it was 2006. I can probably Google it. Um, you know, uh, there, it was discovered that you can take a differentiated cell. So let's just say a skin cell, for instance, and you can put it in a dish and overexpress these Yamanaka factors. And they're called Yamanaka factors because they were discovered by a guy named Shinya Yamanaka, who won the Nobel Prize for this discovery. And it has really transformed the face of cell biology and entire industries are built around the idea that you can make stem cells out of differentiated cells because of Yamanaka factors. So essentially, let's say you take a, a, a skin cell, a dermal cell, 
um, that had it's, you know, it's, it's fate is decided. It's, you know, a dermal skin cell. You put it into a dish and you overexpress these, these four factors and they're called the Yamanaka factors, which he discovered. So OCT3-4, SOX2, KLF4, and CMAKE. He didn't discover each one of those individually, but he discovered all four of them together and the way they function. What it does allows that fibroblast to turn back into a pluripotent stem cell, which can then go and become a bone cell or a muscle cell or any other number of things. And this really transformed cell biology. It was, you can take something that, you know, is older, right? You can take a skin cell that, you know, has, has a defined trajectory and has a defined um, identity and basically turn it back into like the, the youngest form of itself, a stem cell that can then go and become something completely different. And so that was a huge discovery. And again, entire industries have been built around this idea now. And this research has been expanded on tremendously since that discovery and since you won the Nobel Prize. Um, But to answer your question specifically, what Yamanaka factors, do they get turned on with exercise and muscle? Which ones? What type of exercise? So this is kind of the area that I've become more interested in in the last three or four years. And to answer the question, um, when you go exercise – all of these Yamanaka factors, what their basic function is, is to epigenetically reprogram. So kind of wipe the epigenetic slate clean, so to say. So the cell can then revert back to its earlier state, a stem cell state um, is the best way I can describe it. And so, but these Yamanaka factors are transcription factors and they can go and basically turn on thousands of genes at the same time. Um, So they're very, very powerful. And that's part of the function of, of, or that's part of the reason why they're so powerful. So they can turn on a lot of genes and they can also kind of rewrite the epigenetic code, not the genetic code, the epigenetic code to, so that genes can be accessed in certain ways. And so when we go exercise and skeletal muscle, a lot of different genes get turned on, but, um, transcription factors, which are what these Yamanaka factors are, um, they get turned on too. And the one that gets turned on the most with exercise is this one called MYC which is, um, or CMYC, um, MYC. And so we found that first of all, it goes up in muscle a lot with exercise. Second of all, it goes a lot, up, it goes up a lot specifically with resistance exercise. Um, it does go up with endurance exercise as well, but, um, it does increase, um, in response to resistance exercise quite, quite largely to a pretty large extent, but it's not a, big sustained increase. It's not like you do an individual or a bout of exercise and it stays elevated for 96 hours. You know, like it goes up, maybe it peaks at three hours and starts coming back down is back to baseline by like 24 hours or so. So it's kind of like this pulse and then it goes back down to baseline. And when this transcription factor, which is a Yamanaka factor uh, as well, when it gets turned on, it activates a whole bunch of different genes that we think are important for exercise adaptation. And so that's what we've become really interested in is trying to understand, well, what does this one Yamanaka factor do in response to exercise, specifically in response to resistance exercise? And can it be leveraged to make older muscle at least adapt more like a younger muscle? Um, Because it has this role as a Yamanaka factor that can kind of make older cells appear younger again. And so that's kind of the area we become interested in. And so how would one determine that? Obviously, through muscle biopsies, I know that you've got mouse models, um, which you've done a wonderful job creating some uh, very exciting translation to humans. If 
an aging skeletal muscle becomes less effective, a decrease in power. You know, we know your research is showing that there's this Yamanaka factor, particularly MIC, that seems to be turned on with resistance training and may have somewhat of a, and I use this word cautiously, a regenerative effect. I don't know if that would be the appropriate terminology. Is there a certain dose? Is it training dependent? Do we know if an individual does, I don't know, 10 sets of squat, 10 uh, right. sets of squats at their, I don't know, again, make it up. Right. 10 rep, you know, whatever it is with a, a lighter amount of exercise. Is there any uniform influence that we could say everybody at a baseline level should be doing this to potentially, and I understand that to target a Yamanaka factor is not the same as targeting a, a blood glucose number, but is there some right. <laughs> influence that we could recommend or does that relate, um, you know, again, to this DNA methylation, which I want to talk about next? What What are we telling people and how can we think about that from a regenerative capacity and what does that even mean? Right. Uh, I mean, I, I get a lot of blowback sometimes from, you know, a lot of times the word rejuvenation is thrown around trying to rejuvenate a cell and things of that nature. And what does that mean exactly? And it's, it's, it's a hard thing to pin down. I mean, I like to say that, you know, these muscle, when we induce these Yamanaka factors, we're kind of shifting them towards a state where they are, I guess, more plastic. So have a, a greater ability to adapt potentially. So um, as far as your, your question, because regeneration is a separate process. Mm. That is something I'm interested in, but it's a, a stem cells has to do with a lot with stem cells and things like that. And that's, that's a whole other conversation about regeneration um, with aging and all these things. Cause I spent six years studying muscle stem cells um, prior to this. And so I spent a good deal of time thinking about that. <laughs> so yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting topic unto itself, but we'll, we'll stick with the, the Yamanaka factors for here. Um, and so as far as like a dose of exercise that would in, induce MIC, for instance, at least from, I've never done the study, right? I've never done the study where I've taken somebody and okay, we're going to do five sets versus 10 sets or, you know, three sets versus eight reps or what have you. I've never done that. I mean, that data might be somewhere out in the literature. Um, I'm not sure, but the, the people that have focused on Mick, Mick hasn't been super as focused on as, as a lot of other things, um, that are exercise responsive. So, um, you know, what I can say is from, you know, there was a study that was done a couple of years ago by one of my collaborators that they took all of the, the gene expression data from all of the exercise studies that have been published to date. So basically, it was this big compendium of studies where people had biopsies done before and after different forms of exercise. Um, and then they looked at all the genes that were being expressed in response to that exercise. So you can do this these big sequencing studies or these big microarray studies where you can basically look at all the genes, more or less in the genome, and which ones are being turned on or turned off in response to exercise and muscle. And so they, you know, there's been many of those studies done over the years. They took all of them together and did a huge meta-analysis and said, okay, these are all the studies to date, what genes are being turned off and on with exercise. And when I looked through that database, which is, you know, dozens of studies. Just a handful. Um, 
Yeah, it was a bunch, a whole bunch of studies, and they did a great job of putting it all together and making it usable. There's a little website you can go to and plug in your favorite gene and see if it t- gets turned on with exercise and muscle. It's really cool. It's called Metamex, um, and it's uh, Julian Zirath and Nico Pilon in, in Sweden and Karolinska that, that put this together. Um, and so you can go in there, you can look at your favorite gene. Um, and when I did that, I found, well, that's how I, one of the ways I figured out that Mick was the one that was being expressed the most with exercise. And it seemed, based on some of our data and um, some of, you know, the data that was in that, that, that big meta analysis that just resistance exercise in general was better stimulus for Mick. Um, And we found that in our own studies too. We published a study where we did a time course of biopsies after resistance and endurance exercise. So we took a biopsy. I say we, my collaborator in Sweden did this. His name is Ferdinand. Um, I helped him with it, but this is his study, but he took a biopsy before and then took biopsy 30 minute, three hours, eight hours, and 24 hours after a resistance exercise bout and an endurance exercise bout. The resistance exercise, like I'm pretty sure it was like your typical three sets of 10 with like squats and leg extensions and things like that. And then their endurance exercise, I think was just maybe a 45 minute cycling bout, if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken. Um, it was pretty standard. It wasn't anything fancy. And yeah, we found that Mick went way higher with the resistance versus the endurance. Now, to all of that is to say that I'm not answering your question directly because I don't know. Like, I don't know if one set or 10 sets is going to be better for inducing this response. But one thing I can say, and this is a word of caution, um, is that, you know, Mick sounds like a good thing, right? It's a Yamanaka factor. It may have quote unquote rejuvenating properties. And, you know, all these things are good, it sounds like. But in actuality, though, you know, Mick goes up after exercise and it comes back down. And if you were to leave it up, that would be bad because it's it's an oncogene <laughs> as well. And so Mick was one of the first genes implicated in in the cancer. progression of cancer. Yeah, exactly. And so that's not good. Um, so when it gets turned on chronically or gets turned on constitutively where it's always on, that's bad. And so it needs to be controlled in this way that's kind of pulsatile and more transient. Because if you just turned it on all the way and left it on, that would be really bad. Like that would be your muscle doesn't really form cancer. It can, right. um, you know, but it's pretty resistant. The muscle fibers specifically, but um, but that would not be a good thing. In the same way that turning on like mTOR, for instance, you know, they call that the master regulator of muscle growth, mTOR. When you turn that on constitutively for like long periods of time, it actually results in um, pathology and muscle atrophy. Like it needs to be controlled. Um, And so because also mTOR is implicated in cancer as well. And so, and interestingly, as we get older, mTOR actually gets, goes higher. I know. (laughs) I I was just, I I was wondering if you're going to mention this. I just, I sat down with Blake Rasmussen and we were talking and Elena Volpe, I I didn't get a chance to sit down with her, but I sat down with Blake or Blake. Uh, Blake, when they were in Galveston, and it was one of the topics of conversation that we talk about mTOR and skeletal muscle in this pulsatile manner that, Mm -hmm. right, it requires exercise, it requires leucine, there's a handful of influences. But mTOR, for the listener, they've heard me talk about mechanistic target of rapamycin, and you're the first person that's actually saying this on the podcast, and you're absolutely right, is that as we age, it's kind of revving at a uh, a higher amount all the time. Um, yep. And then, you know, I don't want to confuse anybody. You do need to stimulate it for muscle protein synthesis. And what Kevin is saying is that in aging, mTOR 
there is an anabolic resistance nature, the efficiency of protein utilization and mTOR stimulation in skeletal muscle with the resulting muscle protein synthesis is somewhat less efficient, but overall mTOR, which is in all tissues, is revving and uh, turned on, for lack of a better word, at a consistent, you know, yeah. at a consistent level, which is interesting. They call it like hyperfunction, yeah. where it's like it, very, actually, very elegant. There you go, hyperfunction. But we're being revved up, but also right. it's like we're maybe not being revved up in the right ways. You know, we may right. be just translating because mTOR is up. We may be translating a bunch of proteins that we don't really need, and maybe they're not getting turned over. So maybe they're turning into aggregates, which is not good. Um, and we're getting mislocalization, and you know, you know, there are pools of protein that are being turned over, whereas there are other pools of protein that are being turned over at slower rates or different rates are not being turned over at all. And then when you add in this component of, you know, mTOR being hyperactive, you may just be more or less creating more of things you don't want or need. Um, and that's not good. And so, um, so yeah, the muscles getting smaller, but also, I mean, because mTOR is up there, you have to have some element of breakdown too. And so breakdown must be going up too to compensate for that. And because you are losing muscle as you get older. And so it's, it's a very, it's not as simple as everybody says it is, is what we're we're beginning to discover. Um, and you know, it could be the case with Mick too, from what I can tell, at least in human muscle, Mick protein levels don't go up with aging, but it doesn't mean that it's in at baseline, Mick is very low in the muscle. If you know, in some studies, it's not even detectable. Um, in our in our mice, when we probe for it at rest, we don't see anything, uh, and so it's only when we exercise that we see it. And does and it? So, and does it matter? Sorry to interrupt. There's there's two yeah. uh, just questions that I have. Does it matter the the fiber type? In, in that's a wonderful question. In, in um, you know, I can't answer that question in humans, the data might be out there. And I think we're going to have the data eventually. Um, There's some data sets I haven't combed through yet where I could look and see if fiber type matters as far as MIC responsiveness. What I can say is we have a genetically modified mouse model where we can control MIC expression only in the muscle fiber whenever we want. So we can turn it on, turn it off at will. Is this the power mouse model? No, this is a different mouse. This is a, the power is an exercise model that we use in conjunction with our mice. And the mouse I'm talking about is one that has been genetically engineered so that we can basically say like, okay, we're going to age the mouse to four months, which is an adult mouse. And we want to turn on Mick, but we only want to turn it on for a few hours. And then we want to turn it off. And then a couple of days later, we want to turn it on again. And then we want to turn it off. We can do that with this mouse. And so that's, it's a very powerful tool. So it's like I was saying, like when you want to study mTOR, a lot of times you, you just turn it on and then it's always on. And then you study what happens. But that's not how it behaves in response to exercise, right? It goes up and then it comes back down. It goes up and then it comes back down. Or with aging, maybe it just kind of gradually starts going up, 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 whatever. Um, but it's it's a dynamic process. It's not just on or off. And so with our Mick mouse, for instance, we wanted to be able to turn it on and off because we know that if we turned it on for a long period of time, A, that's probably not going to be good for the muscle. And B, that's not what happens with exercise. With exercise, we know it goes up, then it comes back down. It goes up, it comes back down. So we were interested in trying to create a model that could mm-hmm. replicate that. So we've done that. And so when we turn it on, we can harvest different muscles from the mouse, right? So we turn it on for, let's say, 12 hours. Then we harvest the muscles. So we harvest the soleus muscle from the mouse, which is 
more um, oxidative. It has more slow twitch as well as well, oxidative profile and fiber type don't always go perfectly together, but it has like more type one and type two fibers. Um, whereas like the plantaris or the gastrocnemius, which are other muscles of the leg may have a higher proportion of like the more fast twitch fibers, like the two X and the two B, like the super fast twitch type of muscle fibers and muscle fiber types differ between mice and humans. And I was just going to, I was just thinking you guys, I don't, uh, yeah. don't think humans have type two B. Uh, they don't. So, well, we have. I think we have the gene for it, but we don't really express it except for maybe in some really odd muscles. But um, for the most part, yeah. So we only have one two A and two X. But then it's a debate whether two X even really exists in pure form mm-hmm. and humans and all these things. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so it's, <laughs> it's highly a whole complex. I, I didn't realize this. I um, I'm curious. Can you speak? There's a lot of talk right now about this DNA methylation and aging. Right. This is. Right. Now, the hot topic is DNA and methylation. Please tell me, how does this relate to skeletal muscle? What does it do? What can we learn from it? I know that your lab is doing a lot of work investigating methylation with skeletal muscle um, and specifically in the context of exercise. I could certainly talk about that. Very excited. Yes. With the NIC overexpression, we see more genes being turned on in the soleus than the other muscles. And it's more of a I guess a slow twitch type of muscle. So could be that it's more influence in that, but that's just in the mouse and using a genetically modified mouse model. There's a million caveats, but that's what I can say about that. So as far as like a human being, which muscle fiber type is more responsive, which has more MIC responsiveness, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, So hopefully we can figure that out. But um, as far as methylation with aging, so, so basically as we age, a lot of things change, right? Um, you know, the, the composition of our muscles change, you know, sometimes we might get more fat infiltration. We may get more fibrosis as we get older. So the muscle may become less, less contractile material, less muscle fibers, more other stuff. Our stem cells, um, start to die off. Uh, A lot of different things happen, but, um, in our DNA though, the DNA, the epigenetic profile of the DNA changes over time too. So we're not talking, well, the DNA does change over time because of mutations. Um, that's, you know, how cancer a lot of times happens, um, you know, is a mutation that then starts driving a gene like Mick, for instance, um, and can cause cancer. But, um, but, you know, for the most part, the DNA, you still have the same set of genes that you had when you were born, you know, it's just some of them might be a little different due to mutations for various environmental things and what have you. But, but what's really changing a lot over the lifespan and I say a lot, it's not even all that much, um, but it is, it is changing, is the ge- epigenetic profile. So one thing that our laboratory studies is DNA methylation. So essentially, we're talking about changes um, in methylation methyl groups attached to specific nucleotides in the DNA. Um, and so these can be added to cytosines, and they can be taken off of cytosines in different areas of the genome. And that can determine the function of different genes, you know, whether they get turned on or turned off or spliced or all these different things can happen with changes in DNA methylation. And that's what one of the epigenetic layers that my laboratory studies is DNA methylation in muscle with aging and exercise. So we like to try and understand how these different methyl groups are getting added or tur- or taken away, maybe how that's happening and how that's influencing what genes get accessed and um, how exercise adaptation does or doesn't happen throughout the lifespan. And so, but what's been found, and this is um, 
you know, there's several, a lot of people that have contributed to this field over many years. The, the most probably recognizable and recognizable person is a guy named Steve Horvath, who, um, who now works for, um, Altos Laboratories, yeah. which is, a uh, an aging left startup. Away. They all left academic. I, it, I think that Jeff Bezos and these groups pulled all these highly academic minds away. I mean, I, I can't be sure, but I think a lot of these people left academics. You're right. You're right. Um, Steve Horvath was one of them. He was at UCLA for a long time and now he's at Altos Laboratories. Um, a, a lot of big names. Uh, Shinya Yamanaka is affiliated with um, mm. with Altos Laboratories too, oh. the guy who won the Nobel Prize. So um, all these ideas <laughs> are intertwined. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I have a question. Um, you know, we use, we're starting to use more, and I, I understand and appreciate that these are two separate things. Looking at methylation and blood work, um, you know, for example, we might look at homocysteine, and there's ways in which uh, providers can potentially look in blood work and, and look at these methylation factors. Do we see uh, an easy way. Number one, is there any translation between skeletal muscle and aging methylation and something that we could potentially look at as a biomarker that you're aware of? I mean, it, as far as something in blood that would relate to something that's happening in muscle with methylation, I don't know if anyone's looked at that. Uh, that would be a tough one. Um, I mean, you could grab muscle samples and and get some indication, but that's probably not something most people are interested in having done. And so I don't know if there's anything – there's other biomarkers in the blood that people can look at, but as far as like epigenetically, I don't know. Like maybe there's some microRNA or something that – which is like a small RNA that gets out into the blood um, – um, that could potentially be a biomarker, but as far as the methylation age stuff, I'm not so sure. Um, yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I feel like the answer right now is probably no, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, what we can, I can appreciate that. What we can do is, you know, take a muscle sample and look at the methylation profile, uh, of the DNA and get a, fairly accurate estimate of your chronological your chronological age That's so you know that, that was a discovery that was made you know it, we've known it for a, for a little while steve horvath was the one that really kind of popularized it and, and developed it and, and turned it into something that people are really using now but it's this idea that as we age all of our cells so not just the muscle i mean you could take a, a swab of saliva or a sample of blood and run a methylation aging analysis on it and accurately predict a chronological that person's chronological age. So you, and so you can imagine the uses for this could be numerous. I mean, you could maybe use it at a crime scene to figure out, you know, if there's some blood, you know, how old the person was, and that could maybe narrow down, like you know. <laughs> who the perpetrator was or whatever. But um, but what it's being used for now is to try and understand the aging process and whether it can be modified at the epigenetic level and whether that can lead to functional changes that are beneficial or not beneficial. So for instance, like if you had an unhealthy lifestyle, if you smoked a lot and were overweight perhaps and inactive, um, you know, maybe we take your methylation age analysis from your saliva or from your muscle, wherever for that matter. Um, it, may, it may change from organ to organ too. Yeah, I, was, I was just wondering, and does it change from muscle to muscle? Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, probably is the answer. But um, and like more active versus lecta and fiber types and all these things might might change it or a lot of things. So, but we'll just stay on track and talk about methylation aging and how it basically the methylation profile will change pretty systematically throughout the lifespan for just about everybody. 
for everybody, I should say. Um, and you'd be able to, if you had an unhealthy person and you were to predict their age based on their methylation profile, that age may come back older than what they actually are. And vice versa, if someone was healthy, you may predict their methylation age and it's younger than what their chronological age is. What does that actually mean? I mean, it seems like it seems it, it, it seems to align with a person's health status. Does it mean they're going to live longer or any of those things? I'm not so sure, but it does seem... The other question that the big question I think is, is it causative or is it just a byproduct? You know, like, is it these changes at these specific methylation sites throughout the genome? Is it causative for that person becoming healthier? And I don't think we really know the answer to that yet, but these are um, things that people are trying to study and understand. Um, So specifically in skeletal muscle though, yes, we can take muscle samples from humans and we can take them from our mice and submit them to this methylation aging analysis and predict their chronological age. And then when we do stuff to them, it will change. Mm. And for instance, like with exercise, we published a couple of studies where we exercise trained our mice um, late in life. You know, for the last two months of their life, they exercise trained. So they were sedentary their whole lives. And then we trained them for a couple months and then euthanized them, harvested the tissue, subjected that to the methylation age analysis. And the ones that had exercised just for two months had a younger methylation age than the ones that were sedentary. By how much? By how much? Uh, so they exercised for eight weeks and they were eight weeks younger. So that's not to su- from a methylation perspective. So essentially like from that methylation standpoint, like their methylation aging stopped at the point that they started exercising. But what does that mean? Does it mean that they could turn back their clock all the way to zero and, you know, become infants again? Of course not. You know, like Benjamin Button. <laughs> exactly. Like are these Benjamin Button mice that we've made with our, uh, with our exercise models? No, I don't think so. But I think it's, one part of a, of a larger puzzle of what is exercise doing that's beneficial, that's making, you know, older muscle appear like a younger muscle, at least from its methylation profile. But this goes hand in hand with, you know, the change in fiber type that we saw that seemed like it was healthier, the, the increase in muscle strength that we saw, all these things, it coincided with that. So it's like, is how is this contributing this change in the methylation age? Is it or is it just a byproduct of something? And is there any relation know. to um, the maintenance of power? Thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. Now, if you guys love energy drinks, which on occasion I certainly do, and I may or may not have a cooler right outside my office where I load it up with energy drinks because let's face it, I am a busy mom and a busy professional. And I know that you guys are also very busy and there's a lot of things happening. And sometimes you just don't want to have that cup of coffee, but you do want energy. And I absolutely am obsessed with the first form energy drink. I love Tropical Lightning and Screaming Freedom. You guys will not believe how dialed in and focused and ready to train that you will be with these drinks. They're absolutely phenomenal and they have zero calories, a whole bunch of B vitamins. They have huprazine. They have a neurofactor. And of course they do have caffeine. I strongly recommend that you give them a try. Go to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. That's firstform.com slash Dr. Lyon for one of the best tasting energy drinks on the market. I don't know. Um, that's a good, uh, people have asked me this before and I'm trying to think if, cause I mean the, the level of reversal varied across the mice and I'm trying to think, 
because they we, when we put our mice through these exercise protocols, it's voluntary for them. So we just put them on their wheels and we weight the wheels and they run different mounts. Some run a lot, some run less. Um, I don't think we've had a big enough sample size to draw a correlation really between you know, how much they're exercising versus how much reversal we're seeing and, and things like that. I don't think we've done enough. We need a pretty big sample size to tease mm. that one out. So, And their chow is all standardized. And I'm, I'm curious, I'm, I'm curious how it would relate to humans. You know, again, we think about mm-hmm. methylation, at least from a physician perspective or nutrition perspective, you're talking about DNA methylation in a exercise perspective. I wonder what influence, if any, that nutrition plays a role in the DNA methylation aging in skeletal muscle? I would think it would. And I don't know the data off the top of my head, so I can only kind of speak in kind of broad terms, but I would think that it was. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, there's evidence to suggest that like, you know, a mother's eating habits can affect their offspring and that's mediated by epigenetic factors. And one of those is DNA methylation. And so I would say that diet has probably an immensely impactful um, role in determining, you know, well, I mean, the quality of the exercise and the recovery, but also maybe just the diet in and of itself. Like I think um, being on a high fat diet, even for a relatively short period of time, can change muscle DNA methylation, and it will stay different for a while. As far as like, is that affecting? So the methylation aging is kind of an algorithm based I was wondering on how you do you and I'm how you're looking expert. at this is this a uh, what uh, what do you call it um, private um, what's the word yeah, proprietary is it a proprietary right. algorithm so, or is there something that that you know other uh, researchers providers can can have access to to look at DNA methylation methylation Well, I mean, to look at DNA methylation is a process. It's something where we have to start start it in the wet lab and isolate the DNA in a certain way and enrich it. And then it needs to be treated. Like there's a lot of steps. And then with the actual methylation age analysis, there are, they call them clocks, methylation clocks. And there's a lot of different clocks out there. Like there's a lot developed by a lot of different researchers. I mean, Steve Horbath has a whole variety of them. He's developed clocks that work across the entire, entire animal kingdom, like conserved CPG sites, all this crazy stuff. But people have developed all different types Mm -hmm. of clocks. And a lot of times those algorithms are publicly available, but you have to know how to code and how to process the data and do all these different things. And so it has been commercialized though. I mean, you can send out, you know, a swab of DNA and, or, you know, a cheek swab or whatever, um, have a methylation age done based on one of these algorithms and it'll, it'll give you a number. Um, and so, but I think it, you know, the, the ones for muscle, for instance, like there, there haven't been that many that have been optimized for muscle. So that's been a little bit of a challenge and we've had to work with Steve Horvath and some people to try and sort that out. But, um, but yeah, I mean, these are specific cytosines that get, you know, the, the change in methylation throughout the lifespan is very, very small, but it happens systematically. And, but I mean, there's a lot of different, there's clocks that have hundreds of thousands of CPG sites that are included in the algorithm, some that only have a few and how well they perform based on tissue and species and all these things. And you it's- haven't mentioned that, but I do have a question. Does muscle myonuclear CPG DNA methylation change with exercise training? So yeah. You, yeah, yeah. you brought up you brought up a CPG DNA. Uh, 
in all fairness, I had not heard about it before you. Um, does that change with exercise training? And then I think the ultimate question is, what can we learn from your research? How is it translatable? Because I think that that's uh, your ultimate goal is bringing some of this work to um, the bedside. What does it yeah, mean to further individuals' lives? How can they address aging? So number one, what the heck is it that DNA methylation, that CPG DNA methylation, how does exercise affect it? And what, with your research, what are some of the things that if your mom called you and was like, Kevin, I need to de-age myself, what do I need to do? Right. Okay. Yeah. No, that's, uh, let's just take them one at a time. So with the myonuclear methylation, so basically when we study muscle, muscle is really interesting, unique for a lot of reasons. It's difficult to study, but that also makes it fun to study. Um, so most cells in the body are mononuclear. So they have one nucleus, right? So your skin cell or an eye cell, or whatever, any other type of real, almost any other type of cell in your body has one nucleus, you know, and the whole tissue is made up of you know, single cells with one nucleus in them. Muscle fibers aren't like that. Muscle fibers are these really, really long cylinders. They contract, so they get shorter and longer and, you know, they're very adaptable. They can get bigger and smaller and change their phenotype from type one to type two. And all these different things are fascinating. They're very long tubes, kind of like spaghetti though. And within them are hundreds to thousands of nuclei. So they're multinuclear, which makes them really tricky to study. And so what we've had to do is think up some new techniques so that we can pull out the nuclei from the muscle because we, for certain assays, you can just put a tissue basically through a machine and it'll give you the cells you want. Mm. You can't do that with muscle. The cells are just too big. And so we have to pull out the nuclei if we want to study them. And so we made some models to that and now enabled us to do that. And so then what we did is we used our mouse model where we can look at the myonuclei and the methylation in them. And we looked at it before exercise training and after exercise training to look at this CPG methylation, right? So DNA is made up of A's, T's, C's, and G's. And what happens is when you have a C that's next to a G, um, that C can get methylated and then it can change the function of that gene that it's associated with. So if, you know, in front of the gene, if there's a promoter region that allows the gene to get expressed, if you methylate that promoter region, the C's in that promoter region, it may shut down the gene expression. Or vice versa, if you remove those methylation signals, it may increase the gene expression of that gene. And so it has like an actual tangible function. Um, and sometimes there's methylation all throughout the genome. We have no idea what it does. No idea at all. Not yet, at least. So in any case, what we did was after exercise, we pulled out the nuclei from the muscle fibers, and then we isolated the DNA just from those nuclei. And then we looked for methylation changes in the DNA and found that, yes, the exercise training specifically in the muscle fibers, so in the DNA of the nuclei of the muscle fibers, was different than before training. And we think that it was certain genes were being changed in order to facilitate adaptation. So that was something that uh, we published a couple of years ago and have been building on that story ever since then. So um, so yeah, that's that's kind of ongoing projects that we're doing. So uh, but as far as, you know, what what do I what do we hope to gain from all this? You know, like what what what's the ultimate outcome here? And for me, I, I kind of mentioned this earlier. It's like we need to understand the processes if we're ever going to design any sort of therapy or exercise intervention or drug or anything. Um, 
to be effective, we, it's best that you kind of know how it works. <laughs> and so for us, you know, what I'm trying to do with my laboratory and, and, and the team that we have here is just trying to get a basic understanding of these different processes so that hopefully maybe us or someone in the future can help to design drugs that, you know, maybe we don't want to target mix specifically because you know, it's an oncogene or, or maybe we do in muscle and it's fine. I don't know, but you know, maybe we don't want to design a drug that would have an off target effect. That's bad, but maybe if we turn on Mick in the muscle and then we see all these genes change and then we see this change in muscle strength and strange in muscle size, well, maybe we can isolate it down to just these genes that are being turned on by Mick. And then we can focus on those because if we target those and there won't be off target effects. So those types of things um, are kind of what we're interested in trying to do. And a lot of this is, you know, some of it's pie in the sky idea, but some of it's just generating basic knowledge on how muscle works, how muscle adapts to exercise. Why do you think we're, and I guess the first question is, do you think that we are far behind on understanding skeletal muscle? Uh, far behind. I mean, skeletal muscle is a field sometimes still does lag behind a little bit. I think the cancer field probably leads the way as far as technology and things like that, because, you know, it's cancer. I mean, we need to figure out how to solve that one. And so um, and a lot of that technology does trickle down. But I'll tell you what, though, there's a, there's a really big initiative at the National Institutes of Health right now, the NIH, which is the main funding body. They fund my research. They fund Chris Fry's research. Probably everyone you talk to <laughs> has NIH funding. Um, you know, they, they support the work that we do, which is fantastic. But they have this huge initiative called the Molecular Transducers of Physical Activity, or Motor Pack. And I'm sure someone has spoken about it on your Blake, podcast. Blake was but, talking yeah. about a motor pack, yeah. Yep, yep. So Blake's, um, I think he's involved in it. And um, so, yeah, uh, it's this huge initiative of, and it's, it's rodent studies and it's human studies and it's getting human tissues like blood and, and fat and muscle before and after exercise and different types of exercise. And we're talking about thousands upon thousands of people where we're getting all these samples and there's all these data analysis cores all throughout the US that are analyzing these samples and doing methylation. They're doing proteomics and transcriptomics and every sort of omic you can imagine to try and understand why is exercise good? And are there things that we can target based on these huge sample sizes? So if we do these huge studies and see, that, oh, every single person had an upregulation of MIC in their muscle with exercise. Okay, well, that tells us something is probably important for adaptation. What is it doing? And that's where I'm kind of coming in and saying, okay, I'm trying to figure out what it's doing so that we can kind of get together and maybe figure out something that we could target um, that is or isn't MIC. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, that's these types of huge data sets and studies are really coming on board now. And the first papers from MotorPack will be coming out in the new year. And so we'll learn some really cool things. And the human papers will be a couple of years after that. Um, the first first papers will be the rodent papers, I think. So, um, But really interesting stuff. So are we behind? No, I don't know that we're behind. I think we're just adapt, still trying to adapt to all these new technologies. Um, there's so many different types of technologies that have come on board in the last five years that are just mind-blowing that, you know, just aren't as publicly available yet. Um, and we're still trying to grapple with that and try to understand how to integrate them into our research programs because there's so much you can learn. But at this point, like you can generate so much data and then you have to have someone analyze it. And that's a task unto itself, you know, and I'm not a bioinformaticist, you know what I mean? What? So, uh, <laughs> I'm going to so. let your lab, I'm gonna let your, your, your lab know. Um, if you were to make a recommendation, would you say that there is a difference if we were trying to affect aging and, and I'll say aging quote longevity, 
versus performance. If you were to, again, make a recommendation, um, for example, would it be perhaps 20% of your activity would be high intensity intervals, um, 70% would be resistance training. Have you thought about a translatable way to give it to the population or, or what uh, you would consider ideal? Or even right. what you do for yourself. And if you've thought about I mean, I'll, preface, I'll preface it by saying that I'm not a medical doctor and I'm in, not in a position to be giving like, you know, really strict advice on like, if you're going to go on an exercise, begin exercise, I'd say, make sure you're healthy enough to do so. Make sure your medical doctor clears you. I'll say that. I don't know if there's any sort of lawfulness thing going no, on. No, no, no. We, 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 have, we have you covered. We have many um, disclaimers. <laughs> Everybody knows that I am not their physician and you are not their physician. So it's. I'm not even a physician at all. So <laughs> no, 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 no. What, what, I, what I really try to do for the, the listener and even the providers is how do we get experts like yourself on? And as you're doing the research, oftentimes you'll see things or you'll have flashes of insight that, again, sure. takes years for the papers to come out in the teams and the labs to get it out there. And what I'm always looking to do is how can we initiate some of this from an evidence-based perspective or at least an inclination of yeah. making these recommendations to allow people to live into the best version of themselves? Yeah. And I mean, well, I'll, I'll start by telling you what I do, and then I can maybe give you a little bit of insight from some studies that we've done, perhaps. Um, I mean, my my exercise evolved over the years, but it's, you know, there was a period of time where I was almost uh, exclusively only lifting weights when I was younger, and I could, you know, afford to eat what I want and not put on tons of weight. But nowadays, though, it's, it's a combination of both. I mean, I, I lift three days a week, upper and lower body, Two days of those weeks, two days of the week. I'm, you know, one day I'm doing squats, the other ones I'm doing deadlifts and bigger compound movements. But um, those are things that I enjoy to do. And then the other, you know, the other stuff, of course, I work my arms and chest and all these things too. Universal but, um, chest day is Monday. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it is. It is chest and back is Monday with legs. Um, so um, yeah, those are heavy days. Those are hard. But um, but then the other days I'm doing some form of cardio, you know. Um, you know, I'm, I'm either riding my bike outside when the weather's nice. So I have a road bike I like to ride. Um, and then I have a, a rower that I love. I love rowing. I'll row a 10 K I'll probably row 20 or 30 K a week. I love doing that. Um, and then some time on the treadmill too. But, um, I think that combination is, is so important. I mean, that's what the American college of sports medicine recommends is doing a combination of both. I believe that that's the right thing to do. Um, but I think, you know, I think the real answer for most people is, do what you can stick to, <laughs> you know, like I think adherence is something that, um, that is, is really important because if you don't like it, you're not going to stick with it. And so, I mean, if you enjoy endurance training more than, and you're just, you know, if you try to do resistance training, you're not going to adhere to it, like, you know, do what you enjoy. But I think from a, from a health and wellness perspective, it's good to be strong and to be, uh, you know, to have good cardiovascular endurance because both independently are, you know, predictors of mortality, right? Like yeah. having, aerobic capacity um you're having a low aerobic capacity is predictive of mortality in a bad way and being weak um not having good strength or power production is also predictive and so um you know having both those things at the highest level you can get them i think is really important especially as you get older and i mean it, as we get older you know you're naturally going to start declining in muscle mass and so i would say try to put on as much of that as you can when you're younger so that when you're getting older and it becomes a little harder to maintain it and to you know to build it you have a you have a bigger reserve 
you know um i think that's really important and i think the i feel like a lot of people focus on endurance training and that's wonderful and i'm not an endurance athlete but i I will go ride my bike for two or three hours at a time you know like it's something i enjoy pretty endurance um, heavy yeah 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 it is it is in the summer times i do that but it's like if you saw me in person you wouldn't say that guy's an endurance athlete i look like not an endurance athlete i'm pretty bulky (laughs) but uh but I, I, I see the value in it and I know how important it is. But also I, I think resistance training is really underrated. You know, like that's – you're going to lose muscle mass as you get older, yeah. unfortunately. And so I would say try to put on as much as you can as early as you can so that you can uh, maintain that muscle mass as you get older. That's really good so, advice. And and I would leave the listener with something else is that, again, we're, we're not training to become better at exercise. And if you – continue to do the same routine. You don't challenge yourself and there's not a a growth. You have to be, you know, from my perspective is if we know that at some point there is this natural decline in strength and power and skeletal muscle, then we have to begin thinking about skill acquisition, ways in which we can get better, whether it is a new movement or I don't know, a kettlebell carry or a swing or or continue or improve your balance, whatever it is rather than doing the same thing that you did in your 30s and 40s and then just continuing that but getting less effective and weaker, right? We have to to think how we really offset that. No, it's a great point. And just quickly, a quick anecdote, like during you know the pandemic, I set up a gym in my garage. It wasn't anything fancy. It was, you know, I had my rower, uh, we had a treadmill and I had a rack with some dumbbells and barbells, but they weren't very heavy. Um, and I, I lifted that way for like three years. Um, I decided I'm never going back to the gym. This is fine. Um, I'll just do this. I don't have to deal with people or whatever. I've always been on college campuses too. And so I was like, you know, I'm, I'm a professor. I don't think I want to work out with the students. I, I'm just going to stay at home. Uh, and so I, I worked out in my garage, but I recently found that there's a gym just around the corner for me in anytime fitness. And you know, nobody's really ever there, especially earlier in the morning. And they have all the equipment I need. It's very grungy gym, but I that love fun. it. Yeah. And so I was like, you know what? Nobody's here. It's not, it's easy. It's a two, two, not even a two minute drive from my house. So I was like, hey, I'm going to give this a try. And it hundred percent reinvigorated my passion for lifting weights again. Cause I used to lift all the time heavy. And when I was younger and I kind of gave that away. And then now that I'm back at this gym, I'm like, wow, I like get really excited for my workouts again in the morning. And I get to do all these different things I wasn't able to do in the garage because they have more stuff, <laughs> you know? Awesome. And so, um, yeah, but it was, it's been transformative for me and it's, I, I just love it. And I just forgot how much I enjoyed it. And, but it, it was, you know, not something new, but it, is new to me now, you know, because I haven't environment, done the stimulus. Absolutely. So I think it's really important to, to, to keep it fresh, as you say, and to try new things. And um, if, if only just to, you know, so you don't stop doing it. I, <laughs> you know? I think that that's, it's wonderful advice. You know, it is, it is wonderful advice. Well, Dr. Kevin Murak, um, we are really excited to continue to get your research. Where can people find you? And are you accepting graduate students? And are you looking for people for your lab? Tell us a little bit about where people can find you. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you can obviously email, you know, I have, Don't a, I have wait, a not, it's, no, no, no emails. You do Just not kidding. want to no. give out your email. Um, if they are no motivated email. enough to find you, we will put your lab website page and your Twitter 
on there. It's, um, it's easy to Google me, but yes, I have a lab website. Uh, I have a Twitter, Kevin Murak PhD, uh, and the same for Instagram. Um, yeah, th- those are those are social media play ways that you can get in touch with me. And uh, yeah, I'm always looking for students, always looking for trainees. Uh, if you're interested, um, we have a master's program, a PhD program, and I hire postdocs. So, um, so yeah, at any level. And so, yeah, and we have a, a, an undergrad program here too. That's great too, of course. Wonderful. Um, so yeah, University of Arkansas, check it out. Hey, do you know uh, Jamie Baum? I do. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I trained with Jamie. Did you really? I oh, did. That's, She's that's wonderful. Gosh, like uh, so many people bring her up when I go places. I'm like, I don't really see her that much, but like everybody seems to know her. So yes, uh, that's she's wonderful. Uh, um, you're Illinois, right? It's, I was at the University that- of Illinois. We so we were both in Don Lehman's lab. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And yeah, because I, I have some colleagues. Uh, uh, Nick Bird is at Illinois. Marty Bar is there. Yeah. Um, they have they have a wonderful thing going on there. So that's that's awesome. Very wonderful. I got you know what I got to get Nick on the podcast. I I really yeah, appreciate one of his papers. He was talking about the blunted muscle protein synthesis effect in obesity. So I gosh, go. maybe you'll make a an intro for me. Yeah, yeah. Mental note. Get him on here. Yeah. Well, Kevin, <laughs> thank you so much for having uh, your spending your time with us. We really appreciate you and all the work that you're doing. I think it's very meaningful. It's extremely well thought out. I will link some of your open access papers with a nice summary that we've put together. And again, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Hopefully it wasn't too dense. It made sense. (laughs) The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.